out there, welcome to our last episode of the Small Speculations Podcast. I'm Lucy. I'm Janae. And I'm Matt. And today is another day for us to further explore our sites of public memory. So last episode we were looking into more of our personal research methods. I know I personally was looking forward to the um, interview that I had set up and we were looking into, we had the archives visit that we had. Mm -hmm. I think, I can't think of specific... Um, topics that we were discussing just because it seemed like it was so long ago. But it was quite a while ago. We all kind of dug into our um, research methods and I guess what results were being reaped from those and how everything was going. Yeah, I mean, we are here to bring it all together today. It's the last episode. It's our mm-hmm. moment to shine, to show you all the wonderfulness that happens. Mm-hmm. Um, just for personal recap for you guys I am studying the Green Hill Cemetery and you know you kind of walk into the cemetery and it really does feel kind of like a museum just because you are looking at all these gravestones they're pretty much laid out and organized into kind of sections almost like they're in their own little exhibits yeah their own little exhibits thank you Matt <laughs> um, Honestly, it's really nice and quiet there, which is surprising. I mean, it's huge. It is really freaking huge, which I found out that um, the 16,000 plots that are there are almost full. There's probably a thousand-ish left. So they're looking to find some new land for a new Mm -hmm. cemetery here soon. But Mm -hmm. Yeah. I could jump into a little recap on mine. I'll take you guys back to the Buckhorn first. Um, Just... Place yourself in small downtown Laramie. Um, you kind of look at the buckhorn, it feels a little bit out of place, a little bit old westerny, um, if you will have it. Um, in the context of downtown Laramie, um, you walk inside, there's a pool table to your left, there's the downstairs bar to your right with the variation of high top tables. Um, There's taxidermy mounts all over the walls with a mural painting kind of this majestic, I would say, um, picture of um, a water scene, some rolling hills, blue sky. Um, There's various um, signs on the walls with with different sayings, kind of cliches there. Um, There's different rifles also on the wall. Um, You have the mirror with the bullet hole, the staple um, behind the downstairs bar. Um, You walk behind the bar, around the corner, there's the downstairs dance floor, um, the DJ set up, kind of giving you this really older feel um, that I feel like is pretty opposite to the context around it. Uh, That was all. Yeah. That's fair. And I'm covering St. Paul's United Church of Christ. Uh, It's just off of downtown uh, Laramie. Uh, It's sort of nestled away uh, by itself in a little neighborhood. It's just a small church, even though it's the oldest church uh, in Laramie. It's not very notable. Uh, it kind of blends in with the scenery. Um, while it looks like any other church building on the outside, you know, stained glass windows, brick building, uh, tall steeple, on the inside it's filled with pride flags and multiracial depictions of Jesus. Um, yeah, it, it's an interesting mix of both old and new Christian culture. So, I mean, with that in mind, you guys, we, you listeners out there, we've given you a quick recap of what our sites are like. Um, as we're nearing the end of this project, what has personally surprised and or challenged you guys going through this? 
One of my biggest surprises, I think, when kind of researching and digging into the history of the buckhorn is how little tangible information I was able to find. Um, whether this was photos or articles written about the buckhorn, I really couldn't find all that much um, from the archives, just from a simple Google search. I came up empty on pretty much all turns. Um, there was very little you know, information on specifically the history. Like you could look up kind of like tourist destination type things, um, but nothing about like the origin of the buckhorn. Um, this really got me thinking about things that we've discussed with Connerton, specifically about inscribed versus incorporated practices. Inscribed being those written practices, recorded practices, things like encyclopedias and dictionaries and such, mm -hmm. um, things throughout time or memorial. Um, yeah, which in the buckhorn are really hard to find because everything's all oral storytelling. Mm -hmm, yeah. Exactly, which then leads me to kind of oral storytelling as an incorporated practice throughout the buckhorn, incorporated being bodily practices, being um, not things that are not recorded. Um, so I guess some of the things that I was wrestling with that then is what does that mean for the buckhorn? I think it really reinforces this narrative of the buckhorn being like circulated in oral storytelling and all the history um, of the buck is just shared from person to person. Those who I encounter the buckhorn, those who often interact with it, um, those being employees, college students, tourists, um, the Laramie community itself. I think that it really kind of took that home for me, um, but in a way was still surprising, even though I knew going into it that there was a lot of stories associated with it. So I think it was kind of surprising for me to just see how like foundational that was even for the book, like as a public memory site. I think uh, something that I was surprised by is sort of how the church is trying to uh, revise its history. Um, and that, that sort of worked really well with uh, Aiden's idea of revision how a story changes over time, how it can be edited, and how uh, understandings of the present can be put onto the past. Um, because it obviously it's a Christian church in the middle of Wyoming. Uh, it initially started as a very conservative um, sort of uh, institution, uh, but over time, especially in the past 20 years, it's become much, much more progressive, both on the inside uh, with the people in it um, and the building itself. Um, so it's I wasn't expecting to encounter so much nuance between um, what is old and what is new uh, when visiting the church because the two elements clash really hard um, and it's hard for them to get along sometimes and it was it was super interesting to get to see with my own eyes. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Um, I know personally for me, I was surprised, um, I was able to interview the parks manager for Laramie, um, his name is Scott Hunter, and we had a really good chat. We talked for about three hours. Nice. <laughs> um, it was pretty good, pretty solid. I felt really bad. He kept checking his phone, and it was like, oh, my boss is calling me, but I'll talk to him later. <laughs> like, oh, uh, okay. So I was really surprised just because he talked about how people visiting the cemetery you don't get a lot of visitors. He said a lot of the same families kind of visit often, which, I mean, is kind of sad just because you see the same families and it's like, oh, nice to see you again, I guess, <laughs> even though another family member has passed. Mm -hmm. um, he also talked about how, like, Laramie residents, um, parents of 
like dead children were mm-hmm. visiting quite a lot, which can be really hard on parents. Um, but I personally enjoyed how he talked about these different stories of how people interacted at these funeral processions, um, which really brought up this idea in the Dunn article that we read in class, talking about decorum and how people should act in certain situations. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was this one story that he told where obviously you have your sad funeral proceedings. You know, people are grieving, they're sad, and they don't really, you know, they're crying a lot and they're wearing all black. Um, there was this one funeral proceeding where this gentleman decided to make his parents' own uh, caskets. Oh, right, you mentioned this. Yeah, it was kind of interesting. Apparently he made them a little too shallow, for one thing. (laughs) But he also made these handles that are on the outside, which, in order to put the casket into the ground, he had to take the handles off, which he didn't think about. So they had to remove the top part of the casket, unscrew these handles, and (laughs) the whole time he was sitting on his dead mother and then again on his dead father (laughs) just unscrewing these handles taking them off and the whole time he was apparently talking to his deceased parents like oh you know i was just trying to unscrew these things i'm sorry to do this to you but you know i was trying to make you a nice casket and then they buried the parents that's like a sitcom scenario (laughs) it honestly is so jarring and apparently the second time it happened um scott was sending his newest employees he's like go take a break you're not gonna want to see this it's gonna be <laughs> awkward <laughs> you know and finally like you've got that kind of awkward happenstance but then you also have the happier moments where people are celebrating life rather than mourning the death of someone yeah. and you know you've got people drinking handles of whiskey and singing bar songs and just pouring one out for you know which there's a lot of variety there there is a lot of variety which i never thought about because i know personally i haven't had those experiences Mm -hmm. with Mm -hmm. funerals it's always we've had a celebration of life but it's more of like you're still sad that they're gone sure thing yeah well speaking of our personal experiences with this were there any limitations either of you faced while we were like researching this kind of stuff Um, I mean, my findings at the Bucks certainly had limitations, um, kind of in reference to the things that surprised me in terms of not being able to find tangible historical information. I think this then translated to, I was not, I mean, I'm not even able to say right now with 100% certainty the, how credible the information I have Mm -hmm. kind of regurgitated is just because it's all rooted in this oral storytelling, this kind of community of sharing um, among very different people, whether, again, it be college students, employees, um, within the Laramie community itself. Um, I think this really reminded me of Jason Black and Casey Kelly's discussion of scenic space and circumference in regard to the scope of an area. Um, I think that this idea, this, this limitation that I found almost really set that scenic scope of the buckhorn, um, I think it, it when when considering time, I think it contributes greatly to the overall purpose of the book, mm-hmm. um, because I c- couldn't really find any tangible information or anywhere that would I guess absolutely state yes this is fact or yes this is what happened. Mm-hmm. I mean, we can reference in podcast two um, in our last episode 
how I talked about with the bullet hole. There's multiple variations to that story. Um, and that's not the only story, of course. I mean, you can talk about the taxidermy on the wall. You can talk about the remainder of the decor, um, how the buck has changed very little throughout time. I just think it's very interesting how it kind of sets up then that scene of um, just again driving home the idea of oral storytelling and what that means for the book as a place of memory. But I think that's definitely a limitation um, within my research, but also um, kind of an interesting one and, and kind of contributing to a huge conclusion for me as well. I had a sort of similar problem where I, I ended up pulling a lot of information from uh, one source, which is a book uh, written by one of the congregation members of St. Paul's Church. Um, and while a lot of it is based on old church records that the, the church kept um, and stories from within uh, the church itself from other past congregation members and stuff, since it was written by a congregation member, it is undeniably biased in mm-hmm. a lot of places. Mm-hmm. Um, but the thing is, so many or so few people seem to really care about the history of this church that even though it has that bias, um, it was without a doubt like super helpful because it filled in a lot of gaps that I couldn't find in the National Register of Historic Places and, and anywhere that I asked about it in town. So it, it was a unique experience. Yeah, I mean, I think we've all had that same problem of we really can only look at oral storytelling. I mean, I'm lucky enough that my site is with like a part of the city of Laramie history not that your graces aren't because you guys are a part of the city of laramie but it's mm-hmm. like sure it is owned it is operated by the city of laramie mm-hmm. and um something that i was just having a hard time dealing with was that you know laramie was a territory and so it was formed like the cemetery was formed after the, te- the territory was formed mm-hmm. so it was you know just hard because Laramie didn't keep the best records and it was kind of sketchy because you know you'd be gambling at the buck for instance in the old west and be like (laughs) I'll give you my grave plot and you know you end up losing that and then someone ends up burying someone random Um, I know Scott specifically was having a hard time because he will end up digging in this one spot that the sexton says is a good spot to you know dig because there's no one there and then they'll dig and they'll find somebody and they don't know who it is or mm. who the grave belongs to, which wild. Yeah. yeah, is honestly really crazy, which I was lucky to get that interview with Scott just because I know that like with that research and that came from that, I can really pull this bigger analysis, which Powell brings up is this idea of kind of lived history which I can hear a lot of, you know, how the cemetery was formed because, you know, Scott has been working at the cemetery for 20 plus years now. So he's got stories and treasure troves, basically, yeah. which has been super helpful because, I mean, once you live through these moments, like that one guy burying his parents and, you know, having those caskets, that was his personal story that he was able to witness, mm-hmm. which I think really shows more about how Laramie memory is created rather than just the history of the cemetery is. Mm-hmm. Um, now that you kind of bring that up, Lucy, the research outcomes and analysis with that, um, it kind of makes me reflect on interviews that I talked about in our last episode um, that I had with the employees at the Buckhorn. It 
makes me think about the, the different information that I received from them and then kind of like what to make of that information. I mean, I learned about things from the goalpost over the first floor bar mm-hmm. being from a 1999 game against BYU where Wyoming and an upset came out on top. So college students tore the goalpost down, carried it down Grand Avenue and just into the Buckhorn Bar to celebrate. Which, did um, they have to break a window for I, that You know, I really don't know, and I would love to know. Um, the employees sharing that also didn't know oh, nice. <laughs> how they would get that in there. Um, now it hangs, you know, above the bar. There's tons of signatures all over it. It was, like, huge. Um, mm. And they kept that, and it feels like, I mean like a piece of memory there that totally doesn't relate to the rest of the things within the buckhorn. Um, Another thing that they shared with me that is kind of like another fun fact um, unrelated to most of the information that was given is that the bar's been in the same family, specifically the Hopkins family, for going on four generations. Um, And you can find all of their names um, inscribed into the first floor bar, which I think is just kind of like an an interesting Easter egg, um, if you will, kind of about the bar. Um, but it really, I mean, it makes me think about kind of this accumulation of old Western culture that's so prominent within the Buckhorn, but then also college culture. Mm-hmm. College culture as seen throughout, I mean, those who interact with the Buckhorn bar. And then even like within the decor, like the field goal post that hangs over the top floor bar with all of their signatures all over it. Mm -hmm. So those are just some interesting things that I can reflect on um, that are new for my research and analysis. You know, honestly, this is kind of a weird way to take this, but do you think they just don't want to get the goalpost out of there? Like, do you think they don't know how? (laughs) Or like other random collections that are in there, do you think... They either don't want to get rid of it, or do you think they just want to keep that history there? You know, I would really like to know the exact rationale for keeping everything, or <laughs> even even really, I mean, like I shared in the last episode, the lack of renovations, too. Mm-hmm. Like I said, they replaced the floor, mm-hmm. but kept the carpet underneath the floor, which seems like mm-hmm. maybe questionable, um, just because of the yeah, smell maybe. that it does <laughs> produce. Um, but then, in regards to your question about the goalpost, actually, it feels very intentional to keep it. It is hung above the bar. I don't know if you've seen this, but just to kind of paint a picture for everybody. The goalpost um, is kind of chopped in half, I guess you could say. Oh, okay. And then hung above the bar with chains. Like, it was very mm. intentional the way they chose oh. to keep it within the bar as, like, kind of this memorial for that, I guess, historic day for the University of Wyoming, for the bar itself, having that being carried through the door with such an influx of people that was obviously filled. I mean... So I think it was pretty intentional to kind of keep those things all together. So to me then, I guess it, it causes me to kind of wrestle with this idea of, I mean, there's been question on, does the buckhorn intentionally try to keep up this old Western narrative? Mm-hmm. And honestly, I'm not so sure. I mean, coming from a personal opinion, it feels more like the buckhorn is just collecting memories and this is how it has happened to come about. I mean, the taxidermy, like mentioned in a previous extra. Um, episode is collected from all past employees. Mm-hmm. It's only by donation. They've never really sought out any of the decor that's in the buck. It's just sort of been given via personal relationships or like the goalpost, mm-hmm. <laughs> kind of carried in against everyone's will. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I think it's just this really um, kind of neat collection. So I mean, it's an interesting question. Something something definitely interesting to ponder. 
Yeah, I mean, the fact that you can keep something and get rid of something. I know, Matt, you were talking about in the church how you've got, like, this idea of, you know, black Jesus versus white Jesus, and you've got, you know, why not keep or get rid of one or the other of those, you know, stained glass or paintings that are in the church, you know? Yeah, it's super interesting to see what the church has decided to do um, over time, because... Uh, obviously, the oldest pieces of uh, artwork within the church, I-, I decided to study a bit more of the artwork itself because I wanted to see like how it was installed over time. Uh, a lot of the artwork was installed uh, all at once, actually, during mm-hmm. some big renovations in the early 1920s. Um, so that included uh, like altar paintings, uh, all of the stained glass windows, or at least like the four big notable ones. Um, and eventually, just over time, they've added more paintings uh, inside the sanctuary, but none of which depict Jesus as a white man, uh, which all of the ones from ni- the 1920s do. Um, and instead, it goes uh, full opposite side of the spectrum and depicts uh, Jesus and other biblical characters as African black people, um, which is super unique when you consider that uh, that is equally as inaccurate as depicting Jesus as a white guy. Um, There are some merits to saying that Jesus definitely had some black followers because this was in the Middle East and they constantly interacted with Africans all the time. Um, But it's it's fairly well known that he was a Jewish Middle Eastern man, Mm -hmm. as well as all of his followers were. Um, So it's unique to see that in pushing against Jesus as a white man narrative, instead of embracing the truer narrative that he was a Middle Eastern man, they just embrace an entire separate narrative of Jesus as a, a, a totally different race. Mm-hmm. Um, it it kind of had me thinking about uh, Pauchewski's idea of uh, the simultaneity of stories, how public memory sites often associate uh, just one story with their history, even though there are tons of overlapping stories that actually form up that place's history. Um, And it seems almost that the church is trying to create its own narrative by introducing uh, other art pieces of, uh, with Jesus and other biblical characters of other races. Mm. Um, And going against the very, like, book they're preaching from. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I know that I also really enjoyed the Palczewski article, just this idea of the meeting of history and kind of how narratives can be overwritten, which is kind of unfortunate. Um, I know that something that I found out in my interview as well, because I was curious as to why there's a fence up around the cemetery, typically my mind, because it's a college town, you know, college kids are up to some shenanigans. Um, But I found out that it's because in the 1950s, the football team took their trucks that they were driving and um, some chains, the UW football team was doing this, and they drove through the cemetery and were ripping up gravestones. (laughs) So That's crazy. um, It's unfortunate. And of course, UW, you know, kept it a little yeah, they, hush hush they hit it. yeah they hit it because they didn't want that bad rep um sure i know that i mean with this idea of like memory versus history and keeping you know laramie or i mean the cemetery as well as a memory scape i know that like the practices of memory 
can happen in the cemetery, um, especially around, like, Memorial Day. I found out that's, like, Christmas at the cemetery is <laughs> Memorial Day, which is kind of interesting. I mean, you go there and you go and partake in the act, this incorporated practice of memory, remembering those we've lost. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you go and you've got the history aspect, which you've got the past lives of Laramie and how, you know, the old west of Laramie focused on keeping their dead buried or, you know, they were in the territory. Um, those that were lynched were just buried where they fell, unfortunately, and then mm-hmm. they dug them up and reburied them in the cemetery. So that's part of the mm-hmm. not knowing of history. Yeah. Um, and then, honestly, the memoryscape of the cemetery, like how do you want to be remembered when you die? How do you want to be buried? Where do you want to be buried? Did you mm-hmm. add to this Laramie culture and the Laramie landscape? You know, that kind of idea really just thinks about this deeper rhetorical analysis of mm-hmm. why we should care about these sites of public memory. I think jumping into that too, since you're kind of coming to um, a conclusion about your public memory site, um, I wanted to talk about, in relation to what I've already mentioned, um, about how I, I guess, unknowingly learned about my site as a memory scape. Um, when talking about kind of the book, I felt like I was just getting this collection of like random fun facts. So I was like, well, this is just getting really fun facty. <laughs> I can't really draw anything from this. But after thinking about it and having some probing conversation about it, um, it really got me thinking about the relation of the buckhorn to Thomas Dunn's term of anachronism. Um, anachronism being a person or thing that is chronologically out of place, um, especially in one former age that's not congruent to the present. So that got me thinking about the buck. The buck itself is an anachronism. Mm-hmm. Um, if it really is this bar that's upholding the, own west, the old west, it doesn't fit within modern small town Laramie, mm-hmm. being a small town as it is. Um, and it never really did. Um, the bar was established in 1900. It wasn't named the Buck then, but it was still a bar mm-hmm. um, with that kept the Old Western vibe, even though the name changed. Um, so, I mean, and even then, it wasn't Old West. Um, so it's kind of always had this um, anachronism to it and digging more into it since I focused really throughout the whole course of this podcast on the decor the decor itself is anachronistic to even each other. Um, like I just mentioned, the goalpost hanging above the bar, that's not Old Western. Yeah, that doesn't yeah. match. I mean, the taxidermy, that matches. That kind of tracks with it. Um, the rifles hanging up, um, even the old signs, kind of that mural that I painted for you yeah, in sure. the description of my podcast, that, that feels like it matches. Um, so because they kind of work together and against each other, I really needed to ponder what that meant and what that concluded the buck to be like as a memory scape and I really I guess the conclusion that I'm coming to with that and the things that I've been wrestling with is that I think it speaks to a greatest greater purpose of the buck as a memory scape um, a place that houses many memories both related and unrelated to the old western um, and specifically college culture um, the way that college students and throughout the ages have come circled through they've gone to the buck they've they've encountered the buck they've experience these incorporated practice of oral storytelling with the buck various employees of different ages coming through and how this how this contributes to the Laramie community overall 
um, and kind of keeps the society going of oral storytelling and how um, important that is to the community and how that will, I mean, certainly in my mind, continue um, with the Buckhorn being an important place. Um, even once we're long gone out of college, it'll just keep circulating. So I think those are some interesting things that I've been pondering when, when talking about the Buck as a memoryscape for sure. Yeah, I mean, some another question to just bug you with, I guess. Um, do you think that it is really that anachronistic, though? Like, do you see these differences? Because, you know, the UW campus, which I would argue is the biggest part about Laramie. Mm-hmm. Sorry for the rest of those that live in Laramie and don't go to <laughs> UW. Um, but I would say that, you know, we are the, we are the cowboys. That's our brand. Sure. That's our shtick. You know, so do you think it's important that we keep that old Western vibe to stick with the essence of Laramie? I mean, honestly, no. Um, I don't think it's necessarily foundationally <laughs> important that we do. However, I think in the terms of college culture, um, I think it's kind of fun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if we're, if we're going to be pretty honest, I think it's kind of fun. Um, I know a lot of people who go to the Buckhorn don't necessarily find any sort of personal relationship to that culture, mm-hmm. to that old Western culture, um, but in the sense of a college college culture and what you're, I mean, traditionally participating in when you're at a bar, mm-hmm. um, it's kind of fun. And I think in relation to your question before, do they really work against each other? I think if you're trying to define it as simply upholding the old West, they do work against each other. Mm-hmm. But I don't think they work against each other if you're defining the Buckhorn as a memoryscape. So I think that that's an interesting thing for you to um, kind of point out for us to discuss because I think it's important to note that while the Buckhorn does have very prominent Old Western features, and I think that will continue to be kind of its driving theme, um, I think there's also something deeper there in terms of like a memory scape and, and the things that it, and the meaning that it has as a public memory site. Well, playing off of that, um... I, I, it's almost the exact opposite with St. Paul's Church. I, I would I would argue that um, its contradictory uh, imagery and ideals within the church itself um, do not work together. The anachronisms kind of make the whole institution fall apart a little bit. Um, but I, it's not like they're doing it intentionally. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I think I think Creswell explains this like perfectly. St. Paul's Church is the encapsulation of the word, of the word uh, parataxis, um, where two things are placed right next to each other, often paradoxical things, and you just have to figure out what to do with that. Mm-hmm. Um, because while all of the people inside are super progressive and open and very accepting, um, and the lessons they teach are good, the way that they teach those lessons present themselves as so old-fashioned and out-of-date mm-hmm. yeah. that it's almost inaccessible to a modern audience. Mm-hmm. Um, I get the feeling that a lot of people who have who continue to go to St. Paul's Church um, have been there for a very long time and, yeah. un- and just understand how things work there. Because as someone new who attended there, um, even though all the people were extremely welcoming, I really didn't feel like I fit in sure. because it felt so old-fashioned yeah like even though uh everything felt very new um just the atmosphere itself it it felt like i was stepping into another era Mm. and it's it's just 
it did not work together well for me. If I were to come to a conclusion about all of this, it was that they need to ultimately, that they can keep all of the, the old-fashioned stuff, that's fine. They can keep being super progressive, that's fine too, but they need to update how they're delivering their messages, otherwise they're not gonna get many new people coming into their doors. Mm-hmm. I think it's interesting then to consider how your site of public memory, how I guess the, the context and the conclusion that you draw from that is so impacted by then outside sources too. Mm-hmm. Um, like you say, like the way that the, I guess the congregation themselves kind of present themselves isn't, like you said, it's not really related to the way that the site is structured, mm-hmm. um, but it still impacts the way it's received. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. As a memory scape, it is just, as, as an outsider studying it, uh, as a memory scape, it is extremely confusing mm-hmm. to, to find a way in. Yeah. Where if you were an insider with that, I get the feeling everything would make total sense. Sure. Hmm. So, honestly, with all these in mind, I have a, a deep th- question again. <laughs> um, so, with these in mind, do you think that, because all of our memory scapes are old. They're a sure. part of, like, the original founding of Laramie, in mm-hmm. essence. Do you think that memory scapes need to be targeted towards younger audiences, or do you think they just happen to exist in these old spaces and that's what makes them memorable because they're these older kind of places, these older kind of memories, these older things. Because, hmm. like, I think mine is newer in the sense that people are still dying and still being buried there sure. to this day. Then, you know, it's just something yeah. that happens. Um I mean, and people still go to the book, but yeah. nothing new that I've seen, at least, has been placed in the book in a minute. Sure. Like, the decor yeah. has not changed no. within the past ten years, You're definitely at right. least. Uh-huh. You know, and I mean, you've got these progressive imagery things, art things, <laughs> in the church. You know, I mean, it's new and it's progressive, but it does seem out of place, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think this really speaks to, like, the overarching... I mean, even what you've said before, like, people, unfortunately, are still dying. Yeah. Um, and in my, um, in the case of my site, people are still in college. They're still participating in that college culture and going to bars and whatnot. And then in the terms of, like, Matt's site, um, while the decor and the artwork has not necessarily changed, the church itself has become more progressive in comparison to kind of traditional um, norms that mm-hmm. we have, we all kind of are aware of. Um it really makes me think, I don't know if this exactly answers your question, but it really makes me think about how the memory scape is not necessarily what's changing. Mm-hmm. It's just the people who are interacting with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, I think it speaks to how different interpretations of these memory scapes, the memories themselves are still there. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're still, I guess, objectively, quote unquote, the same. Um, but the people interacting with them are changing and the way that those people are representing those specific memories are changing mm-hmm. um, and so then interpretations are changing so I think that's a really interesting question to pose that I'm not quite sure has an answer yeah frankly I don't know what to do with that yeah <laughs> and I don't know if there's anything we're supposed to do with that yeah because that's just how history and memory works yeah so yeah I mean it's something we need to consider as we I mean we are wrapping up these podcast episodes and we are kind of coming to a close with this project, but I mean, it's something that you listeners can continue to do is to kind of challenge these public memory narratives that are in place. Yeah. 
Um, I do think that this is going to be a good place to probably wrap things up for this episode. And, I mean, this is the last time that you'll hear from us. especially going to hear our nice voices again. Oh, no. Your, your favorite and lovely trio, you know? <laughs> I mean, we thank you again for listening to the Small Speculations podcast. I'm Lucy. For the last time, I'm Janae. And I've been Matt. <laughs> and we will always continue to encourage you all to keep looking at your public memory spaces all around you. And that's it. That's it. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs> Woo.